Chapter 15 of A Battle for Right. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Victor Seremet. Bucharest. Site VictorSeremet.com. A Battle for Right by Nicholas Carter. Chapter 15. Tract. It may be interesting to know just how T. Barton Potter did escape from the roof when he made that desperate leap in the darkness across the width of the alley. Almost any athlete wouldn't think much of clearing nine or ten feet between marks on the ground with everything favorable for the feet. Such performances are done at most athletic meets without causing surprise or any other particular emotion. But sixty feet up in the air, with the certainty that any slip would mean crashing down on hard stones, a heap of mangled nothingness, it was a different thing. If T. Barton Potter had stopped to think for a second, he might have hesitated. It would have been no reflection on his courage if he had. But he had no time to think, and over he went. For a few seconds after landing safely on the other roof, he lay down behind the parapet. He had two reasons for this. One was to recover his breath, and the other was to keep out of sight of his pursuers. Unless he jumps after me, I've got him buffaloed, whispered Potter to himself with a dry chuckle. I wouldn't do it again for a million. What would be the use of fifty millions even to a dead man? Now, how am I get out of this? Keeping under cover of the parapet, he crawled around to the rear of the roof. There was no parapet here, only an iron gutter. The gutter ran along to the end of the roof and emptied into an iron pipe which went straight down to the ground. At least Potter supposed it did. He couldn't see it in the darkness. I've got to take another chance, he muttered. And it looks worse than the other when I jumped. I don't like it, but what can I do? I don't intend to be caught. I believe even a week in a prison would kill me, unless it drove me insane. Lying flat upon the roof, he gripped the pipe firmly. Then gingerly he lowered himself over the edge of the roof and pinched the pipe between his knees. With a double hold on it, hands and knees, he began to inch downward. If this pipe should fetch loose, I'm a gunner. I hope it will hold, but it seems awfully shaky. The pipe creaked from time to time, and more than once he heard the rusty spikes which held it to the wall in the rotting mortar grating, as if they were about to pull out. But the thing held somehow, and in about ten minutes he was safely on the ground, uttering a prayer of thankfulness for his luck for he was not what could be called a pious man. He had made up his mind which way he would go if he reached the ground, and that was over the back fence. Blessed with uncommon agility, as well as hardened muscles, he swarmed over the high fence without much difficulty. Then after sitting astride for a moment or two, he dropped on the other side. It was fortunate for him that all the police has withdrawn. They had concluded, when the raid was over, that there wouldn't be any men trying to get away in the rear. If they thought anything about T. Barton Potter, they had decided that he was clear away. 
The other side of the high fence only brought him into another backyard and he saw that the houses were as high as those on Salisbury Street. If there's a side alley and gate, I can make it easily, he murmured. Darn my luck, there isn't, he added a moment later after a hasty survey. The house is full width of the yard. There were high wooden fences on both sides, but he didn't see that climbing over them one after another was likely to help him. Sooner or later he would run into somebody in one of the yards. Then he would have to explain why he was there, and he might have to tell his story to the chief of police. I won't take any risk of meeting that gentleman, or any of his men, if it can be helped. T. Barton Potter came to this decision very quickly and with much earnestness. For reasons of his own, he did not care to be brought into contact with blue coats and brass buttons on that night of all others. It will be daylight in course of time, he reflected. Then I should have to find my way out. I wonder if I can't get through this house. It's the only chance I have. He stole up to the back door. It was locked and bolted, of course. Didn't suppose there would be any chance that way, he muttered. But there is a little window belonging to a pantry, I guess. By Jove, it's open, I see. That's to let air into the place, for the benefit of the milk or butter or something. The window was too high for Mr. Potter to reach, but as he has been remarked several times, he was an athlete and as active as a monkey. With a short, swift run, he managed to leap up and catch the seal with his fingers. It was not easy to pull himself up, and if he had not been in good physical training, he never could have accomplished the feat. As it was, he was up and peering through the open window in a few seconds. To lower himself inside was the work of another 10 or 15 moments. The door of the pantry, for a pantry it was, had not been fastened, and he was in the lower hall, making for the stairs, while a slower man might have been trying to work his way through the window opening. Up the kitchen stairs and into the main hall he rushed. There were some complicated bolts and locks in the front door, and it took him some time to overcome them. What was worse, he could not do it without noise. Potter had a vision of a man in pajamas suddenly appearing at the top of the stairs on the second flight with a lamp in one hand and a pistol in the other. Who's that? squeaked the man, evidently frightened out of his senses. Hands up or I'll fire. But T. Barton Potter had the door open by this time. Fire and be blowed. He yelled this back defiantly as he rushed out and slammed the door behind him. I'm glad the fool didn't fire all the same, muttered Potter. It would have made rocket enough to bring the policeman on post anyhow, and I don't want to see any of those gentry until I've had time to compose myself. Hugh, I wish I were in good old New York. He walked leisurely along when he had turned the corner, for he knew that a running man or even one walking swiftly might be questioned by the first policeman he met. I don't see anybody about, just as well. I'll get down to the ferry house and sleep across. I hope there won't be anyone around there who knows me. You never know where the police will put a man. T. Barton Potter was a slick individual, and he had the faculty of seeing all around him without appearing to stare. 
But smart as he was, he didn't perceive a man who had seen him come out of the house where the person in pajamas had threatened to shoot and who was following him as closely as possible without being discovered. Gee, what luck, I knew he'd try to get through some of these houses if he made a getaway, muttered this individual. It may be hardly necessary to remark that the individual was none other than Patsy Garvan. It was indeed Nick Carter's assistant. He called it luck that he was on the trail of Potter when no one else was. But it was really shrewdness reinforced by patience. Patsy had figured out that when the raid came, the men would scatter in all directions if they could. The police would try to prevent this, of course, but some of the gang were liable to slip through their net, and it was Patsy's opinion that if any of them escaped, the slick T. Barton Potter would be one of them. While the chief and chick were in the northwest, Patsy had been on another case and had brought it to a successful issue. What this case was doesn't matter. But it is interesting to know that as he followed it up, he got just before the return of his chief and chick a side glance at T. Barton Potter. He had had his own suspicions that the rascal was mixed up in this counterfeiting affair. Potter walked swiftly toward the river, but before he reached the ferry house, he resolved that it would be too risky for him to cross the water that way, and he plunged into a district with which he was fairly well familiar, down among the wharves, to see if he could hire a boat without making anybody suspicious. Nick had been quite right in his belief that Patsy had managed to pass himself off as the owner of the yawl in which he and Potter was rowing. That was exactly what he had done. As they neared the place on the Manhattan side where Patsy had decided to land, Potter paid him the dollar he demanded for rowing him across and darted out of sight while Patsy was putting the money in his pocket. Patsy grinned as he leaped upon the wharf right on the heels of his late passenger, and after hiding behind some fright till Potter walked away, followed him until he had reached the street. Then followed the chase through the tortuous streets of Lower New York until T. Barton Potter rushed up a stairway to the elevated road of South Ferry. Patsy was not far behind him, so near, in fact, that he contrived to be on the same 6th Avenue train that carried Potter uptown to 8th Street. At this station, Potter got off, and Patsy, who had been in the next car, also dropped off and hid himself in the shadows until Potter went down the stairs. In less than half an hour, Patsy rapped at the door of Nick Carter's library and walked in, cool and collected, to find his chief busy with some papers at his big table, and alone. Nick looked up calmly. I was expecting you, Patsy, he said. I came as soon as I could, was Patsy's response. Where is your man? My man? T. Barton Potter. Patsy could not help showing surprise in his look and tone, and Nick regarded him imperturbably. How did you know, Chief? That doesn't matter. Where is he? I'll take you to him if you like, but you'll have to break into a house. Very well, we'll break in, answered Nick, as if the act of burglary was a matter of everyday experience. Tell Chick I've sent him to his room to lie down for a while. He'll have a very short rest, from the look of things. End of chapter 15